This is the Insight is Capital podcast. Sam, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to always be here. So, Sam, now that we've had a fair bit of time to digest it, that was quite a surprise for, for most people in the market when Jay Powell decided to stand down on the Fed rate hikes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it made me think that, you know, if we've undergone such a huge change in technology over the last 10 years, while the market was being artificially propped up, it brings me to my question, which is, what does the Fed know? And, and so how much farther ahead are they uh, than the rest of us if they're collecting data and they're able to process it and they're using predictive modeling and things like that? Uh, well, the cynic in me would tell you that um, uh, they probably have access to a lot more real-time data, data that's um, uh, giving them uh, better, uh, maybe short-term information that they can then correlate with longer-term data. The question is, do their models properly reflect it? And, and that's where the cynicism in me comes in, which is, are they able to use that data? And I think that's the case in all businesses. You know, data has become much more prevalent and much more valuable in today's world. It's the difference between those who actually can organize the data and utilize it effectively. You know, why we talk about players like Amazon and Google so well, and then other players like banks today that have all the same data but aren't able to organize it. So I actually think that the, the Fed is more like a ladder there, which is more like the banks, which they get all the data, but they don't know how to use it. And so, do you, you agree that they're they're better equipped, but they don't? Yeah. So you're saying they they're better yeah, equipped, but I, they don't necessarily. I guess what I what I'm saying is, um, I don't believe the Fed is, uh, uh, you know, kind of doing something ahead of the curve here. Um, I think they've uh, the the information that has been driving them to sort of slow their pace of interest rates has been called for for some time now. I mean, you know, the Fed generally um, are the ones who create recessions because they go. F- too far, both on the upside and the downside, you know, on their mm-hmm. on their rate settings, and so you know, I think the Fed um, sort of slowed down here. Uh, but if you go back to some of uh, my favorite people to to follow and read, and you talked about Rosenberg, but you know, people like Scott Minard and others, then they've been talking about this for six and nine months, saying yeah. that you know the Fed was you know really the big concern that the markets would ultimately have, and both in the fixed income markets and in the equity markets and and risk assets, and and it depended on how you know how they would respond. Um, and, and so, you know, I think the Fed has, uh, you know, made the right decision more than anything else. They, what, what really they're saying is inflation's right in our sweet spot. Um, we're, we don't need to act uh, aggressively on interest rates because, you know, there's no real reason to. I mean, that's, that's what we have to also get into a place for. I mean, when, when interest rates were sub 1%, there was a reason to get uh, interest rates up because you had no protective right. uh, measures in the event we went into a recessionary environment. And so now that rates are where they are, you know, you now have some protections, some cushions, some, you know, white powder to work with, as they call it. But, but unless you see some runaway inflation risk or some other economic, there's no reason to act. I mean, you can sit in that sweet spot and actually go sideways for some time to collect more data, to understand what's happening. And I think that's where I think the Fed is more than anything else is that, you know, I just don't see them needing to move anywhere. And so why should you? You don't, the Fed actually doesn't want to do anything unless they have mm-hmm. to, unless they need to. And right now, they don't need to. Um, there's no real evidence to say you, you, know, you need to be aggressive and you no know, real evidence to be saying that you should be cutting. So. Yeah, some people in the market thought that, that um, perhaps he was kowtowing to, to uh, the White House. Um, I, 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 knowing knowing that relationship, I doubt that they would be. <laughs> yeah, um, said no. And, and, and that's right. You know, <laughs> yeah. the criticism has come out of there. I, I just think that um, you'd hope again that, that the, the Fed is going to act independently. And I think that is the case. Um, no question that the White House has its 
concerns around a 2020 recession risk because no sitting president has ever been elected or reelected, uh, I should say, um, in, in the face of a recession. So, so that's why the yeah. White House today would be very co concerned about the impact that um, 2019 will look into a 2020 yeah. uh, economic growth year. Um, but, but no question. That's, and that's actually, I think, probably one of the things that the markets could probably take some solace in is that, you know, there, there would be a really, um, uh, there'll be a lot of pressure to uh, support markets uh, and the economy uh, into 2020 and, and slow, shortly thereafter. I mean, after 2020, yeah. I'll bless her off. But uh, into 2020, I bet you the White House will be very aggressive in doing whatever they can to support the markets. It's it's still it's kind of a strange thing though, isn't it? I mean, we had the scare at the end of last year with the with quite a dramatic pullback in the market uh, leading into Christmas, nearing that twenty percent correction bear market watermark, and and then of course the market turned around very rapidly. Do you think that this this rapid recovery we've had in the market? Do you think that it's made uh, investors complacent again? Or, no, I don't think they're complacent. I actually think that, you know, we're hearing from our, we're hearing from our customers. I mean, in January, February, did the yeah. same thing and. You know, it caused uh, people to wake up a little bit. And then, of course, the Q4 did it again and caused people to wake up again. And I think that more of anything else, the complacency is coming away, subsiding. I still think that there's a lot of, you know, kind of that conventional wisdom mindset that is in the marketplace. And, you know, it's easy just to kind of go along with it. And, you know, as you say, it's it's easier to fail, you know, along with a conventional uh, thought than, than sort of, you know, uh, uh, try to, you know, succeed by being unconventional. And I think that's a real issue that our industry faces. And so I do think that this is a time for people to um, step back and really think about the way that they're building portfolios. When I think about the risks in the marketplace, there are real risks that we can see um, and, uh, and not to become complacent. And so as a risk manager, you know, look, we, we never want anybody to be losing money. We want people to be making money, but, but, but we need people to actually wake up and recognize the risks are part of it. Now, you know, you talk about the scare of Q4. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, giving people $300 and taking away 200 and that's the way that sort of December came in and October yeah. came about. But the reality, people are still positive and most should be doing well. It's a reminder though that, that it isn't just a one-way you know, game, it's, it's a two-way game and you gotta be willing to protect that capital that you generate and, and your, the returns that you are able to sort of create um, as time goes on and continuously having that mindset of protection protect what you've got, protect yeah. what you've made is a really important principle that everyone needs to be thinking about. So, you know, this is a time to be, um, uh, you know, uh, really strong in that opinion, uh, despite a strong January um, that has kind of gotten people back into this, okay, that's over with. No, no, it's not over. Not, none of the markets is ever over. It's always got basis of risk. And, and the reality is when we're in the eighth or ninth or seventh, whatever inning mm -hmm. people want to argue that they're in, um, I can tell you we're not in the first or second. So, so, so whatever our inning we're in, you know, you want to be thinking about late game strategy. The pullback in, in, in the end of Q4 of last year was certainly a, a test for investors to find out if their portfolios were well structured. Um, right. I mean, at the same time with fixed income, I think there, there, was, this, there was this angst sort of uh, at the end of last year as to, you know, where do you go with your fixed income? Mm -hmm. Uh, if rates are rising, where do you go? Yeah. Um, and and then and of course with the market with the pullback in equity markets, um, you know initially a lot of money was going into short-term instruments uh, because of that that sort of challenge that quandary. Where do I put yeah. you know the fixed income money if the market's going sideways or down? 
the bond market, if interest rates are rising and, and equity markets are falling at the same time, there's no. It seems like there was nowhere to go except cash. But that, for but, a while, right? But, I mean, but that's but, that's what that's what we have to remember. Um, we're in a different interest rate cycle than we were in 1990 and and in you know yeah. 2006, and you know we're in a very different world, and so. You know, you've got a low interest rate environment. Um, interest rates may go up and down or go flat, but the reality is there's not a lot of return per unit of risk in interest rates in, in, in bonds. And so it really, what I think the most subtle, unsettling part of, you know, this is that, yes, that conventional wisdom of, oh, well, when equity markets fall, my, 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 my bonds will protect me. Well, you know, for 11 out of 12 months of 2018, yeah. bond markets actually were as bad or, or, or difficult as equities were. And so, you know, the, only in December. Well, yeah, there was see, the anticipation it, that uh, rates were Only in December, yeah. that's right. Otherwise, actually, interest rates and bonds were, were unprotective um, and hurt you just as much. And so I think, again, that's the reality of where we are. And if we go into 2019, I'd say that one thing that we can say for certainty uh, is that the fixed income markets will be a low return, high risk environment for most investors uh, and an environment where most people will be really challenged to, to meet their long-term liability from. And so we have to, the same way we, we made this call uh, two years ago, two and a half years ago, we kept telling people that the bond market is a poorly structured part of your asset portfolio. We need to rethink all of this stuff. And so, you know, everybody needs to rethink this. Um, and, and let's get out of that conventional wisdom that a 60-40 portfolio is going to protect me into, you know, periods like Q4. Yeah, so as I said initially, a lot of money was going to short-term instruments because of that catch-22. Yeah, um, I mean, I, but, I would do the same but thing. Ultimately, if you were if you were in the longer end of the bond market, ten, ten years plus in, in treasuries or mm-hmm. um, for one month out of twelve, that's the problem. It's kind of like buying insurance. You know, yeah. you know, you buy insurance, and and you know, the key with insurance is not overpaying for it. So you know, meaning that you don't put too much of your port- your your assets in it. So if I want to buy a million dollars of insurance against myself, I don't go and pay ten thousand dollars a month for it, right? Otherwise, I'll never make yeah. it. It'll be it's useless. But if you pay three hundred dollars a month, or two hundred, or fifty dollars a month, or whatever it be, then you can articulate, okay, that that makes sense. The, the reality is the same thing. If I go put twenty or thirty percent of my portfolio in a money losing segment in the marketplace, meaning I've got very bad return and risk rewards, and I keep that there for you know, that one moment when it's going to protect me, it doesn't make economic sense for the other, for the whole long-term portfolio model. Okay. If, if that's the case, if, if, if being in, in longer duration is not a solution right now, mm-hmm. then what is the solution for, like, how do you, how do you get uh, your, your fixed income uh, sleeve or your por- of your portfolio yeah. into the right, or your client's portfolios into well, the right spot so that uh, if they go sideways, you benefit? In, in terms of higher yield, so, so and, if, and if rates go up, you benefit. Yeah, they, you know, I like, mean, I think the solution yeah. actually is not a, a exclusively a fixed income problem. It's right. got to be a portfolio problem. So, so let's start with the fixed income side. So uh, I go back to my comment around, you know, how much of your portfolio would you allocate to that bet, that insurance? And so, so long duration is, you're betting on one thing, you're betting on a deflationary future, right? And if you believe in deflation, then, then you should go long duration. Right. The reality is, is that it's a very difficult bet from where we are in the markets on interest rates. So maybe you allocate a small component of your portfolio to that bet. But the question is, you know, look at decision theory and you say, how, what percentage do I think is going to have deflation risk, meaning interest rates are going right. to go down lower? I'd allocate that percentage to it. But the other side of it, I'd be allocating, again, to low duration, you know, very, you know, ultra low duration, um, global bonds, 
um, Canadian bonds, uh, markets that you know you can generate returns on an active basis. We've mm -hmm. done a lot of good things on our side of purpose with our global bond portfolio with Newberger Berman, and that's a really power. You can get three and a half, four percent global bond returns and yields uh, with very little duration in that. The second thing is I do active, active uh, uh, high yield strategies, right. and the reason is because you know it's still a world where there's no there's no default risk right now in the marketplace. I mean, I say that like yes, credit is expensive. But there's also, you know, very little default risk out there right now. And so until you start to see default risk, you actually want to get paid on, on taking greater risk on the credit side. But you got to do it with an active mindset, someone who's going to actually manage it for that risk of default starting to creep up and, and understand the credit stacks. Right. And so you can't just be silly and go buy the, the bond, you know, the high yield market, in my opinion. You've got to be very tactical in that area. So active high yield is a great place to be right now. Those are the areas that I build up my, call it fixed income portfolio. If you want to allocate a small component to a long duration bet, it's fantastic. That's your decision because you believe in deflation. But just be sure yeah. that's why you're doing it. The second, the, the, the high yield guys at um, Alliance Bernstein called the high yield market the comeback kid. Yeah, because that's right. you know spreads can widen out. The, the corporate, you know, the the corporate space, the high yield uh, bonds, that's jump right. bonds go down in value along with equities, but then they come back. That's they ultimately right. come back, and, and well, you even though they're not, even if they don't come back, they still have the yield. Well, you remember, with bonds... I mean, they don't they, come back right away. <laughs> but one of the great things with bonds they is do. when you buy the bond, you you know, as, as long as you do your credit work properly, you're going to get paid jack your money. Yeah. So as long as you don't pay a premium for it, or you know, or you, you buy the bond in a good place and you do your credit work continuously, you know, theoretically, mark to market is one thing, but but you should get your money back because it has a term and you're going to get your money back. So it's not like an equity asset that way. It may get pricing on a mark to market basis based on asset flows, people are buying and selling into the market because it is a liquid based on short term view, but those are opportunities more than anything else. So on, on high yield, active versus passive. I, I, by the way, yeah. Active on fixed For income. Sure. Yeah. Anybody who's buying passive fixed income right now, I think, is this was this is the game of you know two thousands and nineteen nineties. Um, you know, when I started Claymore, I was doing passive because I, I really believed in, and that was the way to do it. But guess what? That shifted a couple of years ago. Yeah. Anyone who's doing passive fixed income today is not pro or, or I'd say you got to be tactical around passive. If you're active around your passive, that's fine. But if you're just passively buying pa fixed income today, I think that's a fool's game right now. Yeah. You're a loser's game. I apologize. You know, I don't mean it to be. Well, so isn't that. it better to have an active, an active strategy 100%. to cover that instead of 100%. instead of buying a whole either bunch you're of passive doing the, strategies? Either you're doing the active strategy, yeah. or you're uh, out, out farting yeah, yeah, that you're out. Actively but somebody passive. needs to be managing your fixed income book today from a risk reward, yeah. and it's mostly on the risk side more than the reward side. The second part of this component is then figuring out, okay, the other side of my component, my portfolio, my equity. Well, if I just buy, uh, do this with my fixed income book, and then I go buy a whole bunch of long stocks, you know, like uh, the stock portfolio, then I haven't really done anything other than just kind of increase the amount of risk in my portfolio. Um, you need to manage risk at the equity level too. So now you need to go back to your equity book and you need to complement your long stocks with uh, hedge strategies, with volatility strategies, things that are managing different sources of return that diversify your equity risk and reduce the amount of risk that you are taking in equities alone. That is really critical. It's, it's a key component of this part, part, like platform of building the great portfolios today, but you can't just fix one side of the engine and not the other side of the engine as well. And, and that's what most people are trying to solve the fixed income side, getting rid of long duration bonds, going short duration, buying active money management, this and that, but they're not solving the fixed equity side. They gotta solve the equity side as well. So it is a, you gotta have a program around figuring out your risk profile. You can't just go with the conventional view of, okay, well, 60, 40, active, active, active fixed income, no duration, all the rest of it, that's not gonna get you there. Well, there doesn't seem to be enough emphasis on, on planning for total return. That's right. And, and looking at, at 
portfolios holistically, there's still there's still a lot of of core and explore going on, but very little, um, you know, specific uh, time being spent on it's on just, looking at the overall risk. It's too much hope in portfolio yeah. construction, and that's what we need to get away from. Which is let's be more precise in how do we get to our liability that we're really trying to achieve for. So when the client comes in and talks to us about, hey, I need to make 6%, or when we talk to them about, hey, I'm going to make 5% or 7%, whatever the number is, well, how do we get there? You know, well, we go and build a portfolio, often that is driven by hope. In the past, with fixed income being high interest rates, when, when rates were at 7, 8, 9, 10, you could do that with a fixed income book exclusively. But, but as we've gravitated towards more equity allocations, um, we move that precision of being able to meet liabilities towards more hope strategies. We got to get back to more precision again, and that's how we need to think through this. And 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 I think that we've lost our way in that principle mindset of you know well we'll just hope that the equity markets, these stocks that I like, will get me there. Well, let's let's get a little more certainty into that. And how you do that is drive more precision in your absolute returns and structure of how you get your equity returns alongside of your fixed income, which has precision yeah. in itself already. Sam, what is the um, what is the optimal? equity sleeve or allocation look like to you right now? So if you if you were to stick to, I'll, I'll put 100% into equities and whatever you allocate that into a portfolio, but let's say you, you want to have sort of 60 to 70% of your portfolio probably in long stocks. I, I still believe that right. that's a great idea. If you have patient enough investors who can, you know, it's, 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 it plays a really important role. That's, look, I always say if, if my clients could close their eyes and, and uh, give me their money for 10 years, then I would say, you know, just be 100% stocks. The reality is, is that right. most people can't do that. They care about marks. So call it 65 to 70% of long stocks. I would then allocate somewhere between 15 to 20% in what I call hedged strategies. So strategies that have lower beta hedging employment, but not, not, not low vol, low, low beta, like yeah. meaning they are, they are managing risk by hedging out market risks. So these can be long short strategies or hedging tactical strategies, things like that. And then I put 15 to 20% into what I call volatility. So what we do is a put option writing strategy, which is op- using volatility to generate right return. This is different than a call option strategy, which is using beta and, and some option writing. Right. That, that's different. What I'm talking about is cash with put option writing. That's a really powerful complement and it really protects against downside risk and long-term gives you a really great, more precise return. If I put, build a portfolio that is, call it mostly long stocks, hedge strategies, and, um, and volatility all married together, my risk-adjusted return on my equity book is gonna be really, really attractive relative just to long stock portfolio. What do you think is the most attractive proposition for investors today in terms of you know, view from 30,000 feet? Where do you think investors are gonna do really well for the next 10? I mean, we just, you just talked about the equity sleeve um, is it is it is it by having the optimal fixed income sleeve combined with the equity yeah. sleeve yeah. that we just talked about? Yeah, I, 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 to be blunt, I don't think there is some smoking gun out there that's yeah. going to get us to you know ten percent annual returns. Um, you know, I mean, because commenta- commentators tend to say things like you know right now there's there's you know some reason to believe that that European equities will outperform. Yeah. There's, you know, there's, a lot there's of always reasons to believe that yeah, something's going to outperform, value's going to outperform, this and that. There's also lots of reasons why they won't outperform, and so uh, structural reasons. And so, you know, my, my view is that you cannot beat a well-diversified, well-structured risk-managed portfolio in the long run. And so why bother? And if you are an advisor today thinking uh, about long-term what my job is, my job is really to help clients meet goals, not to, to beat some benchmark or whatever. Yeah, it's just a goal. So how do I get yeah. the highest likelihood of meeting my goal? is to build that well-diversified risk-managed strategy. And in today's world, 
um, th that isn't a 60-40 portfolio because a large part of your portfolio is not going to get you your risk-adjusted return that you need. Um, and you know you need to also be cognizant that a long-only equity portfolio in the late stage of a you know of the bull market has been a it's a different mindset of the future yeah. IRR. So more structuring around it. I do think that international stocks, well, when done well, are really attractive. I think emerging markets will be an attractive space for the next five to seven years, but they could suck for the next 12. Like, you know, we have to be mindful yeah. of all of these things. But but it, you, if you go back to why we're doing it, it's because there's growth in emerging markets that's different, but also currencies that are unique. And if you believe, I, like we do, I think the US dollar is gonna structurally decline over the next uh, number of years. Uh, against a basket of emerging uh, country yeah. uh, currencies. I think that's a place you want to have some exposure to. And so those are the types of things that I think you want to build into it. But like, you know, there's no smoking gun. Like, it's going to be tough. Um, uh, you know, interest rates are where they are. Uh, and and uh, we've, we've sort of squeaked out a large part of the, the great returns from this kind of not only 10-year bull market, but this 35, 37-year interest rate bull market. And so now all of us are facing the next stage of our careers in, a, in, a, in the face of what is a different challenge. That is, how do we make money and squeeze out money when returns aren't as, as, as kind of friendly to us? Um, and so, you know, I think we have to be much more mindful. And, and we have to, again, go back to this concept of don't fail conventionally, you know, succeed unconventionally. That's the way we need to think. Do you have any, any, any specific single thing that you'd want to say to advisors? I think I think let's ste step away from the job that we think we're doing and focus on the job that we all are supposed to be doing, which is focusing on liabilities. And if we do that, all of this becomes very clear. If we think like a pension plan CIO, and we think about I get I get well, I come to work every day, and I will get fired or hired based on my ability to meet my client's goal, my one goal. Then everything I do, every single thing I do is about that one goal. It's constructing the greatest certainty of getting to that goal. So if my client goal is 5% or 6% or 7%, everything I do in the portfolio should be structured on making as close to precision to that five or six or seven. Everything else, it actually becomes, it, once you start thinking that way, it actually changes your mindset. It, you don't start chasing goals and doing all these other things. All yeah. you're focused on is this. And then second to that is keeping our clients focused on that same goal on their side. So that the noise of things like CNBC and BNN uh, and the, and the you know short-term noise of the markets in Q4 and all that kind of stuff doesn't doesn't scare us. Rather, we just keep them focused on you know this specific environment of you know we're likely we're out there trying to make you five, six, seven percent over the next 15 to 20 years, and that's all you need. And I'm going to help you get there. We're partners in doing that. That's the message. If if everyone sits and focuses on that, us as manufacturers. Advisors together, we do this together, we can we can build a better environment for our customers. Tom, thanks so much. It's been great talking to you again. Great to be here, always.